In his gospel account, Luke retells the stories and teachings of Jesus. We see a picture of the Holy Spirit at work, fulfilling the Father's redemption plan through the life and ministry of his Son. He reminds us that the gospel is a matter of the heart, the inner person, not mere external religion. The gospel is a call to reevaluate everything in the world according to God's perspective, not our own. To value mercy over justice, humility over prestige, to value favor with God over favor with people. It's a message of peace, an offering of forgiveness, and an invitation to enter the kingdom of God. The Gospel of Luke. Well, I hope you have your Bibles open to Luke and uh, chapter 22. Uh, you'll need to, you'll really be needing to follow along. It's important that you read the scriptures as I read them to you and then try to explain exactly what God's message is for us uh, at that time. Um, uh, since I haven't been here for two weeks, it seems like forever, we had a men's speaker last time. Uh, I'm going to review very quickly what we taught about the Passover last time. So, uh, because what we're doing today is uh, it comes right after that Passover meal. So last time we saw Jesus up in that upper room with all 12 of the disciples. Uh, the Passover time is to be a time of great anticipation, of joy, of great fellowship together, tremendous meal, and uh, the remembrance of them being released from Egypt and the Passover of the death angel uh, not killing the firstborn sons uh, of the Jews at that time. And so it's a positive time. But this Passover wasn't going like that. And so uh, Jesus was there, the 12 disciples were there, and it wasn't long until he made a statement that just shocked everybody. He said that someone was going to betray him. Now, we know from the scriptures that Jesus already knew who that someone was, and he was sitting right beside him at the Passover. But now we hear these words of the disciples, Lord, it's not me. Lord, is it me? It's not me, Lord. Lord, it's not me. But one said, Rabbi, it certainly isn't me. And that one voice was Judas. And as the Passover meal and all of the teaching was going on, uh, Judas left the meal so that he could, in fact, betray Jesus. And as he was leaving, Jesus looked at him as he's leaving, and I don't have any doubt that they looked in each other's eyes, and Jesus said to Judas, do what you must do, go. All he saw out of Jesus' eyes, I have no doubt whatsoever, was overwhelming love and grace. But then the meeting went from very bad to sort of worse, because now the disciples are arguing with one another about which one of them was the greatest, and they wanted to change seating arrangements, because see what they thought, they thought that Jesus was going to take over Jerusalem, and they were going to be in his cabinet, and one was going to be more important than the other. They really didn't understand what was happening here, and what it was all about, and what they really didn't understand that Jesus did, which puts tremendous emotion into this part of Jesus' life, just hours before he's going to die on the cross, uh, is that this was the last Passover that Jesus was going to attend, and he was, in fact, the Lamb of God uh, who takes over the sin of the world. They didn't get that. And finally, at one point, Jesus stops them, and he, he's done everything he can, and he, he stops them, and he... Uh, looks at them, 
and he talks to Simon, especially Jesus, uh, Simon Peter, and uh, he actually tells Simon Peter, the other disciples too in different ways, but tells Simon Peter that he's going to deny him and that a rooster's going to crow, whatever that all meant. Uh, they didn't get it. It went over their heads. And uh, uh, they thought that they would get ready. They were getting their swords out, and they were going to get more swords and all of that. And finally, Jesus said, if you were here, you remember it. He just said in the scripture, in the, he just said, that's enough. Actually, the way I like to put it, he said, I give up. Ah, that I just give up. So all in all, it was a pretty discouraging end to the Passover. Well, next step, Luke chapter 22, verse 39. It says, Jesus went out as usual, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. Now, the, the, why this as usual is important is in John chapter 18, verse 2, it tells us this. Now, Judas, who betrayed Jesus, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. You see, Judas was looking for a place to betray Jesus where there are no crowds, and they wouldn't have to worry about the crowds. The Passover would have been the right place, but Jesus had arranged it in such a way that he didn't know where the Passover was going to be held. But he did know where Jesus would be going after the Passover meal, and it was the perfect place. So Jesus went out as usual, verse 39, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples, 11 of them in this case, followed him. Now, just to put it in context, this is uh, at night. It's uh, 10 to 11 o'clock at night. It's a 15-minute walk over to the Mount of Olives. Now, here's what's important here. We can see from this that Jesus is following a pre-known plan. He sent his disciples, to obtain a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. You'll remember that. He sent John and Peter to prepare another prearranged place to celebrate Passover. Judas would not have known where they were having Passover until they all arrived there. But Judas knew where Jesus would be after the Passover. Clearly, Jesus was delivering himself over to the hands of his enemies through Judas. And take note that this was at night. And in the Gospels, at night is never good. At night usually represents something that's evil. So in verse 40, we read this. On reaching the place. Now, most of you are pretty good scholars. You know where the place is. It's called Gethsemane. Gethsemane was a garden, a private garden. Maybe a beautiful place, certainly a place of relaxation and, and silence and a time to just sort of just rest. And so on reaching the place, Jesus said to his disciples, probably fairly strongly, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Now, the... The disciples came to Jesus one day and said, can you teach us to pray like John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray? And so Jesus gave them a prayer for them. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but it's really the disciples' prayer. And uh, most of us know that prayer. Actually, as a young boy in school in another country, we prayed that in Canada. We prayed that prayer every morning in school. Can you imagine? 
And uh, so uh, it just sort of rolls off uh, some of our lips. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. We forgive the trespass against others. And lead us not into temptation. And Jesus is saying to them that they need to pray so that they will not fall into temptation. You see, lack of prayer will always make us vulnerable to temptation. What happens next is a major ordeal, and Jesus wanted the disciples to pray. Oh, not to be delivered from their ordeal, but to be kept safe while everything is happening. This is one of those events in all of our lives where we must not listen to the devil's doubts, but to what we know of God's faithfulness, to what we know of God's attributes. Luke's emphasis all through his gospel is on watchfulness and persistent prayer. Chapter 12 of Luke uh, told us how to pray for the second coming. Chapter 18 of Luke, uh, through a parable, uh, told us that we must persist in prayer and never give up. When in trouble, we're to always Pray. Pray to our Father. We're to always worship. The soul that prays and worships is safe. And then look at 41, verse 41, 42. He, that is Jesus, withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them. Now, let's stop there and look up here. This is important. Uh, I use Greek words a lot. I hope you don't think that I'm trying to show off that I'm a scholar in Greek. I'm not. I have a computer program that is. <laughs> I also have a couple of friends from cemetery, uh, seminary who, who are experts in Greek, and if I really am in trouble, I'll phone them and talk to them about it. The reason I do this is that in the Greek language, one word would need a whole paragraph in English to paint the same picture. And so there's one word here that paints a picture of what's happening. And it's the word withdrew. It says, Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them. We could translate that, the one word, he tore himself away from them. He tore himself away from them. He already was having a great internal battle. He knew fully what was about to happen, and he had to face it alone. His disciples would not help him now. Now, reading the other Gospels, we know that he left nine of the disciples behind, and he took Peter, James, and John, who were sons of Zebedee, to where he was about to pray. That's why we know so much about what he prayed and even how he prayed. Here in Luke's uh, short form of everything, it says that Jesus knelt down and prayed. He knelt down and prayed. But actually, he threw himself down. Oh, he, kne he kneeled. Yes, he did. Uh, but he was fully involved in conversation, uh, very emotionally so, with the Father. There's actually a, a verse in the New Testament that pictures what happened at this particular time. It's in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 7. And it tells us that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard 
because of his reverent submission. That is so important. Reverent submission. Paul Tripp wrote a book called Awe, A-W-E. It's a must-read book, Awe. And we need to be in awe of God. And we need to be perfectly submitted, completely submitted to God and to his will. And that's exactly where Jesus was. So we can learn a lot from his prayer in Gethsemane. He says, first word, Father, Father. What a great word that is. What a great word. We sing a song, Good, Good Father. Uh, to know the Father. It's so important that we speak to the Father, that we talk to the Father. During the men's ministry, uh, uh, Pastor Reggie came up to talk about the, the, the ministry that he's part of in our church with the youth. And he said over and over again, he said that he likes to ha- tell the youth that they need to talk to, the, to God, to the Father. They need to talk because he's always there, always there, and they need to be always talking to him. So here's Jesus at the most difficult time in his life, and he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he starts off with the word Father and all that means. If you are willing, take this cup from me. Now, because of the last sermon, you already know what that means, what the cup is. Uh, during the Passover meal, it's recorded in Luke twenty-two twenty. Jesus says to the disciples at the end of the meal, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This cup represents the new covenant in my blood, which is the death. That's the cross, which is poured out for you. I mean, this was an amazing time, an amazing event. You know, the best... Gospel verse, I believe, in the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5.21, especially if you're already a Christian. It says, God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, the righteous one became unrighteous, so the unrighteous ones, that's us, can become righteous. It's almost impossible to imagine what is happening here and to imagine the emotions of Jesus uh, that he's experiencing right now. And so he says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. That must be the prayer of all of us. All of us must be uh, what I like to call self-forgetful people. We'll forget about ourselves. We want to know what God wants. doesn't matter what it is. You see, Jesus was not afraid to die. It was not physical death that he was afraid of. It was the weight of the sin, the wrath of God that he was dreading. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. We see the two natures here. Uh, he was fully human. And tempted in all ways as we are, but he never gave in to the temptation because he was also fully divine. The God-man, the Christmas story, the incarnation, the virgin birth, all of the things that happened during that time. In his human nature, Jesus never, ever gave in to sin. The thought of taking on the sin of the world for him was overwhelming. But in his deity, he was fully prepared to go through with everything the Father planned beforehand. 
So Jesus is here saying, in essence, if it were possible to find another way, I'd prefer it. But I realize your will, my Father, must be carried on to its ultimate conclusion. So I will do what you already willed to be done. In my notes, I have an exclamation mark in brackets because this is one of the most profound things that we can ever really think about. God's will, that we want to do his will above our will. And his statement, thy will be done, isn't uttered in an attitude of frustration, but with an attitude of perfect trust. In fact, this is a great prayer of faith that all of us should be praying every day. But it was exhausting what was happening to him. He was done in physically in the physical body. And in verse 43, this is really interesting. It says, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. An angel from heaven. Now, some people are really into angels. Uh, you know, there are a few angels. A matter of fact, innumerable numbers of angels. And uh, angels uh, can uh, help us. As a matter of fact, we see this already, and we talked about it even in the last sermon where Jesus is coming along to John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus goes into the water to be baptized. The dove comes down. The Father says, This is my Son whom I love. Listen to him. And then Jesus is driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days uh, without anything to eat or drink. And he gets in a big battle with his enemy, the devil, and, uh, and he wins the battle. And then it says in Matthew chapter 4, 11, then the devil left him and angels came and attended him because he was totally exhausted, totally exhausted. And so what is the place of angels in our life? The book of Hebrews talks about it. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 says, are not all angels... It's a question, but it's a question that is answering itself. Are not all angels ministering spirits to serve those who will inherit salvation? I mean, that's a great story. Angels are ministering spirits sent to serve us who are saved, who have received Jesus, repented of our sins, and become Christians. That's an amazing thing. And I've heard all kinds of angel stories. I've got some stories myself that I wonder if an angel had something to do with it. At one time, most of you know the story, but I'm riding my road bike, and it's uh, in the early morning, and I stop uh, at a curb, and I hear this huge noise behind me, vehicles crashing together and screeching tires, and uh, I jump over the handlebars and run as fast as I can run. Uh, for a few, uh, this happened recently, by the way, so it's an old guy running as fast as he can run to get away from all this sound, and then I turned around because it's silent now. I heard a lot of crunching noises. That was my bike being wound around the axle in the front of the, in the car that was just about to hit me, and uh, people have said, wow, how did you do that? Well, I know all about adrenaline and everything. I understand that, but no, I think did an angel pick me up and maybe the angel got run over? I don't know for sure. Uh, but uh, the point is, I don't know. But, uh, but it could be. According to that verse, it could be. Now, I almost never recommend, I recommend a lot of books. I almost never recommend novels. 
I said in the first service that I never recommend novels, and uh, some really intelligent, smart young man who just did the announcements came up to me after. I won't mention his name. And, uh, and he said, you said that you never, but you, you recommend the, uh, ser- the Narnia series. And I said, they're not novels. They're children's stories inspired by God. <laughs> I've read them many times, but I understand what he's saying. I read a book sort of about angels by a woman by the name of Karen Kingsbury. As far as I can figure out, she's, read, uh, she's written more books than anybody I've ever heard of. And it's called Angels Walking. And it just gripped me, this book. And uh, the idea behind the book is that there's a meeting in heaven, and there's all these angels, and they're being trained and sent out two by two to help Christians on the earth. And so, but they're trained so that they know what to do and that they never identify who they are. And so these two angels go out, and one is going to be a waitress, and the other is going to be working in a, an old folks' home. And, uh, and what they're doing is that they're uh, helping other people to get in contact with one particular character in the book who's a Christian in a lot of trouble, a lot of difficulty. He's an athlete. And, uh, <clears throat> and they're, uh, trying to ar- they're arranging things so everything uh, goes uh, right with him, or at least goes the way God wants it to go. And in the book, then, the undercover angels pave the way for this particular Christian young man. But they did not take the pain away from his life circumstances. He still had to go through the difficulties so as to fulfill God's plan for his life and others. And that's the picture here. And the true answer to Jesus' prayer was the strength to bear the load, not the removal of the load. Look at verse 44, if you will, in 45. And being in anguish, that's the same word for agony. So remember the circumstance. This is an emotional, terrible time for Jesus. And being in anguish, in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. There's a condition I've read about where the sweat can get into the, uh, the, where the sweat comes and, and drop down to the ground. And it's huge, you have to be under huge stress for that to happen. And when he rose from prayer, the angel's now been with him. He rose from prayer and went back to the disciples. He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. May I suggest this sorrow of the disciples was leaning towards self-pity. They had stayed up late for other Passovers, but here they slept as a means of escape from that which they did not understand. Sleep can be a way of trying to escape terrible circumstances or responsibilities. I've done it myself. I've been home in the early evening, and after a difficult uh, day or even week or so, all kinds of problems and troubles and praying for things, and, and it's just overpowering, and my thought can be fairly early in the evening, I think what I should do is I should get a book. You can't go to bed without a book. You get a, and go to bed and read myself asleep, and that way I can escape from all these troubles. And then I wake up the next morning, and they're still there. <laughs> Look at the power of prayer. 
That's our right response. Jesus went into the garden in total despair, in agony. And he's now leaving the garden in victory and hope after being comforted by God and by angels. So in verse 46, I think his voice is more like, why are you sleeping? I mean, he's already had a terrible time at the Passover with them, and now they're asleep. And we know, by the way, from the other Gospels, this happened three times. So this is a, he didn't go and pray for five minutes and come out. It was, well, this is a couple of hours going by. And so uh, while he was still speaking to the disciples, the three of them that, at that time, then a crowd came up. And the man who was called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. That's one of the most terrible sentences in the Bible. The man who was called Judas, one of the 12. One of the 12 who spent hours and hours every day with Jesus, had heard hundreds of hours of his talks and his sermons, had seen him walk on water, had watched him raise the dead, had watched leprosy disappear from people's bodies, had fed thousands with only a little, and had faced up to some of the greatest minds, religious minds of the day, and uh, with just a word, sometimes only a sentence, he was able to defeat all of their arguments. That man, Judas, one of the twelve, was leading this group to literally kill Jesus. Now he approached Jesus, this is awful, to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, you can, almost, you can feel it here. He, Jesus is in charge of all this. Judas, are you betraying me? The son of man, that's Jesus. With a kiss? A lot of you who have been in the Bible for a long time, you've heard all of the words for love, you know, philia and agape and all of these words. This is the word for brotherly love. Uh, it's actually the kiss from hell. And, and it's, Jesus is really saying, is, is that the sign you have chosen of friendship and acceptance? Are you so dead to any feelings? And when Jesus followers saw what was going to happen. Now, you really need to see this. We've got at least 400, maybe more, soldiers. The temple police, along with the Roman soldiers, they're all well-armed. There's some of the scholars there that want to see Jesus arrested and a few hangers on. So there's hundreds, but hundreds of well-armed, experienced soldiers are there. And uh, uh, you, the, the feeling would be one, if we were there, any of us were there, would have to have mixed in with everything else, even if we were courageous people, a lot of fear. And when Jesus' followers, verse 49, saw what was going to happen, uh, they said, totally opposite to what they should have said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? I mean, it's time to fight. They thought, they're going to fight all of these soldiers uh, and, uh, who are well-trained? with their little side swords that they have. Well, but that they thought that Jesus was probably going to do a miracle and they're going to, he's going to defeat them all and they'll take over. That wasn't going to happen. And, and so it says in verse 50, one of them, who was it? Peter. We know that from John's gospel. One of them, Peter, struck the servant of the high priest 
he, he missed the head and got the ear, and he took the ear off. The, the high priest's uh, servant's name was Malchus, and he cut his right ear off. And Jesus immediately, looking right at the disciples, said, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Well, first, let's just imagine this. As soon as Peter did that, the sound of swords being drawn every place, the whole crowd of soldiers starting to move forward. And then Jesus literally heals this man's ear and, and he says no more of this to tell his disciples to get out of there. Talk about loving your enemies. Jesus' last act of divine surgery was made necessary by the prayerless zeal of a disciple. It's been said that Jesus has been busy ever since healing the wounds made by the prayer of prayerless zeal of disciples. <laughs> That's us. And then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who came for him. Am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple court for hours and hours teaching for day after day after day and you did not lay a hand on me. And people that lead rebellions generally operate at night and had to be hunted down in the mountains. Jesus taught in the daylight where he could easily be found. And then he said this, powerful sentence, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. What he's saying to them is, what you're doing is fully evil. Satan is behind it. So we have all of my good meeting devilish evil. But God's plan is still on time. The disciples had now fled. Verse 54 tells us what happens next. They seized Jesus. They tied him. They led him away, and they took him to the house of the high priest. That would be Caiaphas. Uh, Luke shortens the whole story down here compared to the other gospels. Uh, Peter followed at a distance. He shouldn't have, but he did. And But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together. Peter sat down with them. Now, here's what's happened. We know from the other Gospels, John knew, obviously knew somebody and was known uh, where they took Jesus. And he went there, and Peter followed him. And then there was a, a young woman, sort of like a maiden there, and she uh, let uh, Peter in because John asked her to. So Peter's in. There's a fire. It's kind of cold. It's, <laughs> it's an understatement, middle of the night, early in the morning. And uh, uh, there's a fire going on, and so he gets with the people in the fire. And uh, while he's there, verse 56 tells us that a servant girl, probably the one that let him in, saw him seated there in the firelight, and she's looking through as she sees the reflection off the fire, and she looked closely at him, and she said, this man was with him, meaning Jesus. The men Peter sat with at the fire were talking about all that was happening. She wanted to make herself look good, so she said, this man sitting with you is one of his disciples. And then panic strikes. Peter just loses it. Verse 57, he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. 
you can see all his courage is melted away. And then, a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. And then an hour later, a full hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him. Now, this is somebody that was probably at Gethsemane. We know this man was a relative of Malchus, the servant whose ear was cut off. And now he says, certainly this fellow was with him, with Jesus, at Gethsemane, for he's also a Galilean. You see, he could hear the accent. He's really saying to him, you can hear his accent. He's a Galilean, just like the other disciples. So Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. You, you may be thinking, why did Peter stay around so long? He couldn't have got out of there. The gates are all locked. Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. They were taking him out. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord that he had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you'll disown me three times. And then Peter went outside and wept bitterly. It even says in the Bible that he cursed. He just wept. Oh, I'm no good. I'm a failure. I never do anything right. And I don't know why I'm God even ever bothered with me. You see, the soldiers were taking Jesus out of the area, so Peter had no trouble leaving. But what we see here is Jesus' look reminding Peter of what Jesus had told him would happen and then through his eyes telling Peter he was loved and forgiven. I don't really know how to express the emotion of the scene, but Peter was sobbing loudly because of what he had done. It would be accurate to say that the eyes of Jesus forever changed Peter's life. This tells us that more than any other scripture, that regardless of how terrible a sinner we are, salvation is offered to us. Plus, it says to those of us who are Christians that nothing we do or say can separate us from the saving love of God. On the other hand, Judas returned to the priests and tried to give the money back. And when they wouldn't take it, he threw it on the floor, just as prophesied already in the scriptures. He then went out and hanged himself. They took the money and bought the potter's field, just as prophesied previously in scriptures. Peter looked at Jesus and wept and repented. Judas was only regretful and tried to cover up his terrible deed. One way leads to life, the other to death. Look at verse 63 now. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him. And they demanded, prophesy. You're a prophet, prophesy. Who hit you? And it's, they said many other 
insulting things to him. I wrote in my notes, they're, sending, they're really saying blasphemous things. They don't realize it, that they're saying this to God. Jesus did everything he could to prepare his disciples. Oh, he knew they wouldn't understand until the Holy Spirit came after the resurrection. But over and over again, he told them what would happen. And they just didn't get it. In Luke chapter 9, verse 22, it reads, Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer many things. Now, the Son of Man is Jesus' self-designation from the book of Daniel. So he's really saying, I must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and I must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And again, in Luke's gospel, chapter 17, verse 25, it reads, but first... I must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Everybody's going to reject me. And then in Luke chapter 18, verse 32, Jesus says with his disciples present, I will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock me. They will insult me. They will spit on me. They'll flog me and they'll kill me. And on the third day, I will rise again. They didn't get it. Jesus, right here in this circumstance, was the one who was ultimately in charge of everything. He had peace and tranquility in this terrible trial. Why? Because he accepted the Father's will. 500 years before, Isaiah the prophet wrote, chapter 53, verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. A picture if you read the whole thing, the whole context of what happened at the crucifixion. We must learn to trust God's will for our lives, realizing that God is with us. You know the scriptures in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I'll say rejoice. You know, it goes on to, to say, do not be anxious about everything, anything but in everything by prayer and Supplication, let your requests be known to God and the peace of God. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. The disciples had temporarily forgotten God because, here's why, of the lack of prayer. James chapter 4, 7 and 8 read, to us as Christians, submit yourselves then to God. To submit means we're giving ourselves totally to God. We're praying. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Come near to God, and he'll come near to you. Well, let's go back to verse 61 to end. Verse 61. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Now, obviously, Peter had been looking at the Lord. So how did Jesus look at Peter? I mean, it's really worth rehashing a bit. Was it a look of disdain? How could you have done that? I told you so. But here's what Jesus had told Peter. They're at the Passover. Now we're back at the Passover. Judas is gone. Jesus gathers the disciples away from their argument about who's the greatest and looks right at Peter, but looking at the others too. Simon, Simon, these are the words of Jesus, Satan has asked to sift all of you, all 11 of you, as wheat. But I prayed for you 
Simon, individually, particularly, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And then right away, I could just see it. Peter can't keep his mouth closed for a moment. Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. I'd never deny you. <laughs> I know it doesn't say that, but that's, he, he didn't know what Jesus was about to say. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. You'll deny three times that you know me. Jesus had prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. And it did not fail. Oh, he wept, but he repented. He was restored. So here is what the trial did for Peter. He was sifted like wheat, and the chaff was removed from him. The chaff, his pride, his self-confidence, his rash presumption, his impulsiveness, his lack of reliability, his changeableness, and now he becomes the rock. I read a book once called Strong and Broken Places. There's many books of that title. Most of them are not Christian books. The one I read was written by a doctor, a medical doctor, who talked about broken bones and demonstrated that the break heals stronger than the rest of the bone, and it will never break at that location again. You see, I'm not talking about bones now when I say we become strong in our broken places. We must let God break us, and then that'll be our strength. So some questions that we all must face up to. Are you looking toward Jesus in your troubles, in your doubts, in your trials? Are you talking to the Father because he's always there? Are you a worshiper? Are you a person of prayer? The Bible says that we're to pray unceasingly. That's, I, I, I used to try hard to explain that. There's nothing to explain. The topmost thoughts in our lives should be about God all the time, no matter what else we're doing. Everything we do should be covered in prayer, even if it's only a word, an acknowledgement. Also, I've made this point so often. This is one thing I really am impressed with when I read the Gospels. Jesus warned, well, us, but the disciples, but us, every disciple, and we're disciples if we're Christians. Jesus warned us to count the cost before following him. There was no bait and switch of Jesus. You see, God has a plan for our lives. And in the same way, a coach of a sports team puts his players through hard times in practice, God will test us with seemingly unbearable tests. And the good news is that there's no reason to fail any of these tests. 1 Corinthians 10.13 was a memory verse when I was a pretty new Christian. I seldom quote the Message Bible, but it's so good in the Message Bible uh, listen to this, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No test or temptation that comes your way is beyond the course of what others have had to face. All you need to remember is that God will never let you down. He'll never let you be pushed past your limit. He will always be there to help you 
come through it. Wow. I'm going to rememorize it in that. He'll never let us down. Father, if you could take this from me, but whatever your will is. That's what Jesus was saying. And we need to be like that too. I've uh, read, uh, I read a morning devotional that I've been reading for years. My utmost for his highest. It's still the, Oswald Chambers, it's still the number one devotional in the world, read by millions of people. I even think about the book by uh, dates, like you think about Bible verses. You know, I'll think, oh, March 6th. Oh, you know, February 14th. Don't forget to buy something for Valerie. And uh, that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, the last two times, if you're reading it, he's talked about a verse that has really impacted my life. And it's Acts chapter 20, verse 24. And uh, what's happening is that, uh, you know, especially Paul's, don't go there, Paul, you're going to get in trouble there. You get stoned again. You'll get all of this stuff. And don't go to these places. And Paul answers, but I do not, I, I, I do not account my life as of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel, the good news of the grace of God. He didn't care what was going to happen to him and terrible things had happened to him and more was going to happen. And he even said God would, has already told him it's going to get worse. Don't worry about it. And that's what Jesus told us. In this world, you'll have troubles. In this world, uh, uh, I'm telling you all these things so that when they happen, you'll know that I already told you about them. And then we're to be a people of self-forgetfulness, the people that aren't in our own lives. And when I read this verse, I know what some of you would think. You'd think, well, Pastor Carl, that's okay for you to read that verse because you're a ministry. No, no, no. We're all a ministry. If you read it that way, uh, that it's just for people who are in, quote, ministry, uh, meaning professional ministry or whatever that means, uh, then you're reading it wrong. Uh, Paul says, none of us should account our lives of any value or as precious to ourselves, if only we may finish the course. And the ministry that we've all received from the Lord Jesus, we've all been given gifts. We've all been, are to be people who are telling others about the Lord. And, and we're all to testify to the good news of the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not to be fans. You know, we've done this a lot now. We've been talking the book, not a fan. We're to be down on the field. We're not to just... This is one of the reasons that many Christians never really experience that peace of God or the reality of God is that they just sort of go along to get along. I'm talking about believers. Uh, and it may be someone here, maybe more than someone, where you go to church, you memorize some verses, you go to all the Bible studies, you do all of that, and, uh, but you really don't put yourself in a position uh, where you need God or else. And that we're all, to, we need to minister to one another. We need to love one another. We need to forgive one another. Uh, we need to encourage one another. We need to warn one another. We're all, this is, that's all in the Bible that we're to do that. And then we're to go out into the world and be lights to the world. Lights to the world. I'm hoping that God will give us another revival. I really am, after especially watching the Jesus Revolution movie. I hope he does. The darker things get, the more hopeful we should get because light shines through darkness. And if we're letting our light shine, then maybe that'll cause another revival as people see how we are compared to what the world is like. 
Uh, How many here saw the movie? Have you already seen it? Wow, fantastic. The first service was the same. That movie really moved me because, you know, I'm an old guy that was old enough to have met Chuck Smith, and and it was wonderful. There was one time in the theater I wanted to stand up and turn around to everybody at one point in the movie, in the beginning part, where Chuck is talking about hippies and stuff. Actually... uh, uh, when he talked about what he thought of hippies, uh, he thought that they should get a job and they should wash. And I, all I could think of is when I was a policeman in a large city in the, ni- in the hippie days, 1960s, uh, we hated hippies. We thought they should wash, cut their hair, and uh, get a job. And we had no use for them whatsoever. And then God looked down on the hippies and thought, well, they're really all, they're active. They're doing all these other Christians aren't doing anything, so I think I'll use them. And millions of people were saved. And so we need to be just like them. Oh, I don't mean long hair. Well, I don't care where your hair is. I'm just glad I have some hair. And, uh, and all of that. But, but we need to be lights to the world, and we need to be praying, not my will, your will be done. We need to be people of self-forgetfulness. We don't, who cares about me? I don't care about myself. I don't mean that in a psychological way that you're ruining yourself. No, I I'm care about others, so I'm, I don't care what other people think of me. That's a waste of time. And so that's what we need to be like. And I think that this passage of Scripture shows that more than anything. Jesus was exactly who God asked him to be in his humanness. And now he's asking us to be more than we can be in our renewed righteousness because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And that means if I repent of my sin and receive him, that I am now righteous and I can go out and be the light of the world. So let me pray for you. Father, It's amazing to me to see what's been happening uh, just in our church, but in the Calvary movement in general, and in lots of other churches. Father, there's plenty of wonderful churches in this area. And I just pray, please use your word to raise up a generation that will cause the gospel to go every place where no one can deny it. And Father, start with us. It has to start with somebody. Help us to be down on the field, in the game, getting banged up all over the place and getting back up again. After he was stoned, Paul went right back into the town where the people threw stones at him. I can't even imagine it. So help us to be like that, that we take no offense at anything, that we are willing to get up and go forward no matter what, and we just want to do what you want us to do. And you have given us a picture of your will through your scriptures in all kinds of ways. We have no excuse. And Father, I do pray that if there's someone here who does not know the Lord Jesus yet as their Savior, or someone online that has never received Jesus, this is your opportunity. Just simply come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I realize I'm a sinner. I realize that I'm more like Peter in the bad side. I want to be like he became. So come into my life, change my life. And if you really pray that and mean it, God will make the, take the next step. Believe me, he'll move you and you will find out what it really means to be in the adventure we call the Christian life. And then, Father, help the rest of us tell others about that good news.